There's ones that called um, uh, maladaptive positive affect. So it's like desensitizing the, the euphoric feelings for the drugs so that people get less triggered by it. So like it's, yeah, there's tons of stuff. The flash forward um, is like, if you have an irrational fear of something, or maybe it's a rational fear, but if you have a fear of something, like I have to go home from treatment and I'm gonna have to engage with my parents and they're gonna scream at me and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, so we can actually desensitize the fear of that. And then we, it, we, we um, also install resources that you can take with you into that situation. Like there's, there's so many applications of EMDR, including what we talked about last time, which is desensitizing memories that support core beliefs that are negative. Um, and that's one of the things I could, so the, the second phase of EMDR is like client preparation. Hey guys, just want to let you know that the title sponsor for this episode is of course, Yatra Center. Um, and our guest is Mike Miller from the Yatra Center. Uh, they are a trauma treatment center in in Krabi, Thailand, uh, where I currently reside as well. Um, I just recently was um, blessed with a scholarship to attend the treatment center that's all brought me to Thailand. And I have to say, it was absolutely transformative. So I am lucky and, and blessed beyond words to, uh, to have Mike in my life and the experience of things I did there. Um, this specific episode is about EMDR, though in, this is the third in a series of, I'm not sure how many episodes yet, uh, the first episode we covered internal family systems therapy. The second we covered cognitive behavior therapy, the CBT, it's more commonly known. And of course, in this one, I move the sensitization and processing EMDR. They are, uh, the way Mike works them, they work in conjunction with each other in a way that seems almost random when you're there, but there's definitely a formula in the way he does things, and it's much more than just therapy in an office. So, you know, Tai Chi, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, uh, ice baths. Just so many different things. Trauma relaxation. Trauma relaxation. There's a ton of stuff going on. The entire experience is conducive to healing. And more than that, um, leaving there, you're left with tools to continue working on it, continue your journey. Hey, Yatra means journey for me. Right? Hey, check them out, guys. They are the Yatra Trauma Center at yatracenter.com. That's Y-A-E-R-A-C-E-N-T-R-E.com. And uh, thanks for listening. Here's the show. Hello, everybody. Watchers, listeners, supporters of all kinds. Welcome to another episode of the Weekend Ramble on the Ashes Blossom Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck LaFlanche, checking in from Krabby, Thailand, halfway around the world in Calgary, is my good friend and co-host, Dr. Lisa. How are you doing today, Dr. Lisa? Good. I'm, uh, I'm glad it's Saturday. I have, I'm on call tomorrow, so I'm going to milk, milk this day off. And yeah, I'm good. Glad to be here. Awesome. How's the weather doing out there? Are we a little better now? A little, a little warmer than last week? It's warming up. Just literally today, like even yesterday, it was minus 30 something again. Um, <laughs> so gross. I think this afternoon, it's supposed to be like minus three. I know. It's so bad. <laughs> it's been... I see our, our returning <laughs> guest, Mike Miller, yeah. who's also in Krabby, Thailand, um, with me. Well, in virtual studio, you remember me still, but uh, laughing, as you say, 30 below, like... That is more than halfway to boiling point away from us, right? Like that, that's like, like that's, that's a lot of degrees, right? <laughs> How are you doing today, Mike? It's crazy. <laughs> I'm, 
well. I mean, today being one twenty-two in the morning. Um, no, I'm good. I'm actually um, very upbeat and hopeful and uh, had a lot of good stuff happen in the past few days uh, work-wise and stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm good. That's, that's Happy great. to be here. That's great. That's great. Um, and, and just for, you know, full disclosure, it is plus 27 degrees here in Krabby Thailand. So <laughs> <laughs> at one twenty-two in the morning, I might add. Yeah, it's going to be a hot I want to like tomorrow, say right? bad words or <laughs> You can hate on it. That's okay. It's not going to make me like hate that, on it. That's but... for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it's human. So you should feel sorry for us. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Right? <laughs> a friend of mine, my friend of mine in Saskatchewan made a post and he said, he said, uh, oh, I, my starter went. I had to replace it in the Walmart parking lot. I'm just like, oh, it's like minus 35. I was like, man, I had to drive like five minutes in the heat to go put like fuel in my scooter. Pretty much the same thing, right? <laughs> I might have got some of the, the comments and gestures you're talking about. I was listening about. to an episode. <laughs> I know. I was listening to an episode this week. I can't remember what one it was, but you were like talking about how like when you go outside, like it's so hot that it like hurts your skin or something. And I was just like <laughs> rolling my eyes in my car. <laughs> I was like, what? Which is a direct steal from like a meme. Uh, from when I was in Saskatchewan that I posted, it's like, why do I live somewhere where the air hurts my face? Right. So, I, and that was about the winter in Saskatchewan. So, um, kind of same thing here, though. Right. Same thing. It was, well, the, the yoga instructor at Yatra, uh, uh, Carrie. Same, same, but different. Yeah. Uh, Carrie said to me once, it's actually cooler if I ride with a sleeves on because the sun doesn't hit your damn skin. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's like, it's actually easier for like, it's easier on you. It's like cooler if, if you have sleeves. And I was like, wow, I totally see what she means now. 100%. I see what she means. Right. It'd actually be cooler to have a long <laughs> sleeve on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, anyway, anyway. Listen, last how are week, you, by the way? I, I was thinking I, about uh, this. You always like introduce <laughs> us and ask how we are. How uh, are you? I'm well today. Um, it's been a rough week. You know, and, and well, I, I can kind of speak to it a little bit, I guess. Um, and, and because it very much does involve Mike, especially it's relevant. Um, I posted up on social media and very vaguely touch base on what was happening. Of course, you guys both know being friends of mine, um, about the, the power imbalance. I don't know if you had a chance to read that post or not, but it was a, it was a lengthy one. I know you did, Mike, because I saw you react to it. Um, I experienced power imbalance over the course of the last months. And what, like, it's been really hard, really, really hard. This month, it finally came to a head. Um, I feel like I was gaslit into reacting, and my reaction got the reaction, you know, the desired effect that, that this person, what I feel is a desired effect. And it really, because Mike has talked so much about power imbalance with me in direct, you know, as, about the situation, um, it really got me to thinking and doing a lot of introspection on first the people who are in active addiction and the, like the multitudes of this power differential that they have to face every single day, all day, every single day. And if it can affect me, who is well into my recovery, I mean, I'm not long-term recovered. It's only been a year and change. Um, oh, look, it's the 21st. So yeah, I guess it's been 14 months today. 14 months today. Um, if it can affect me the way that it has, and it very much has, right? Like I have been very, like it's been a rough time. 
how does somebody without the tools that I've been given, right? And just before I got to Thailand, never mind, you know, with everything that, that I was, that are the tools that I was, I was given at, at Yatra Center, how does somebody even like, and I know how, because I guess I was there at a point, but I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. Realistically, I was on the other side of that power balance for most of my active addiction, right? I was the dealer. I was the guy that, that exploited people's lack of power with me for a long time in many, many ways. And then me being me because, oh, look, I've got something to hyper-focus on. I really took it back to before all of that, it's just in my professional life, not, not even before, because there really hasn't been a before in my adult life with addiction, but in the times when I was high functioning and I wouldn't really consider myself, you know, problem, problematic with addiction at the time, but in my professional life and my relationships and my holy shit, right? And like, we do this so much. All of us do this so much and not because we're bad people or nefarious characters and, or evil or any of the, it's just, it happens and it happens outside of our awareness. And it's like, Wow, we got to be careful, right? We just have to be. And Mike, I, I see you nodding away there, and, and I, know, I know you've got something to say on this topic because you know you're kind of the one that's opened my eyes to the whole thing. I mean, every every relationship has a power imbalance, right? I mean, if you, yeah. I don't know how many people here want to go read a nice heavy book by Michel Foucault or something like that, but uh, you know, like. It, it just exists. It just does. There's all like, there's always a power imbalance. And then I think that what happens is, um, you know, for, for people in the position that I'm in or that, that Lisa is in, like, we have to be acutely aware of that power imbalance and to not exploit it and to ethically act correct. But in most people in the world, I don't even know that they would frame it as knowing that there's a power imbalance, except for that it's really frustrating when you feel powerless. Right. And then like you watch people like freaking out or lashing out, they go to like a social services office and they have this person behind the desk who's like, you know, putting barriers in front of them before they can get some form of relief because their security and safety relies on getting that like and then they freak out and break up the office or do whatever they do. Like that's a response to that power imbalance and feeling feeling powerless. Right. Um, yeah, it's just it's woven into every relationship. Right? And, and that's, you know, as I've been taught and I've read and, and I see it happen all the time and some people exploit it and some people are really careful not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I see this a lot in the, in, in my role in the emergency department, you know, where people are brought in, they're certified, they're, you know, like they're forced to take medication sometimes. Um, and, and yes, very much having to walk that line of making sure they're safe making sure we're safe. Um, but I, you know, I, I try to be mindful. I can't say I know what it's like. I haven't been certified. I haven't been put in a room and had the door locked on me and not allowed to leave. I don't know what that feels like, but I make, a, you know, a hard effort to try to put myself in those shoes and imagine what that must feel like, you know? Well, and it, for anybody listening. I've been that, locked yeah. in a room. I haven't been certified, but I've been locked in a room, not allowed to let, be let out. And I'll tell you how it feels. It sucks. It's awful, right? Yeah. I, I, I said it in the yeah. post. It's terrible. There's, there's, and it's scary. Like, it feels, I feel it's like fight, the thing that I... freeze is what it is, right? It's the exact same thing as fight, fight, or freeze. Right? So whether that's been in, yeah. in, a, in a car yeah. situation or like in the jungle as you've traveled, whatever, right? You've had that. You felt that, right? That's what it is to somebody, right? 
over an extended period of time is awful, right? It's absolutely awful. And the two of you, I've been quite yeah. frank with and, and, and honest in, in how it's affected me, but it really has affected me, like in a, in a really, like in a hard way, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, so continue, Lisa. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things that I know I personally try to do, and it doesn't change the power imbalance, but is to name what you imagine the person must be feeling. I, you know, I imagine this must feel really scary. You know, um, I imagine you must feel really helpless. And then the reassurance of, you know, we're trying to make sure you're safe. We're trying to make sure we're safe. You know, we want to work with you. Um, but I think that if you can name it, like when, when you are the person in the on the side of this uh, that has the is in the power role, is to at least name it. You know, for them. Don't don't force them to name it. You do it. Yeah. You know, you acknowledge what you think that they might be going through, and I will see people's fight or flight you know, reaction really settle down very quickly when you do that. That makes sense. They're going to feel validating, right? And, you know, yeah. I know we're yeah. in, well, we're in the third of this little series that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of each one of the previous two, um, based on my knowledge of the power imbalance between us in certain situations, like we've named it like that, we had a pre-existing relationship through the podcast before you came to treatment, um, you know, and that even though my center sponsors your podcast, we don't expect certain things to happen. Um, you know, we just name it for the for the audience to be aware of that there's no exploitation or anything like that, because I think it's important to just get that stuff out in the open. And I, I'll just name it to some people and say, like, yeah, like there is a power imbalance in this room. Sometimes like, you know, if I have a client in my center, like ultimately I can ask them to leave or, or whatever other things might be happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think people are coming to me and I'm in the position where I'm supposed to be a professional at the top of my game. And the assumption is like, they're not exactly where they want to be in their life, which is why they're seeking me out. So like just in that there's a power imbalance. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, I think that, uh, it's yeah. important to just be aware of it. It, it most certainly is. And, it, it, and, and Mike, it was those conversations with you and I about that specifically that, that really started to open my eyes to it. And then, of course, how, you know, this current situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, I, you know, and I said in there, and I said, you're weeping. And I was. It's like, I was just like, holy shit, man. You know, and partially because of my own, but that hyper-empathetic side of me that is just like, my God, right? The people I've affected, the people that are still being affected one of the things I talked about, and I, I tried so hard to word it properly, and I know you probably know where I'm going with this, was the families of people who, who are suffering an addiction and the, the power yeah. balance there. That, so, and, and I, I kind of want to qualify that. What I said was, for anybody that didn't you know, read that, I, I guess I could pull it up and quote it, but I, I won't bother. I'll just do it verbatim. They, people who suffer an addiction also face this power imbalance from their, with their families. Whether it's they're trying to get money for, for dope, whether they're trying to get money for food, whether they're trying to whatever, right? When it goes into treatment, when it goes when they're actually for healthy or... things, right? Yeah, right. All of these things. Yep. And that's not to say that a family should be second guessing 
I, I mean, I think everybody should always second guess everything they do, but specifically, I don't mean to in any way, shape or form suggest that people's boundaries are, are a problem or that it's not okay. However, to the person who is experiencing that power imbalance, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just one more example of them being hyped up and, and worried and, and, you know, in this fight, flight or freeze mode, right? Um, what it takes. But I think to, part of ahead. that. So go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. I interrupted. <laughs> okay. Um, um. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Canadians, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> what's that about? Um, it's, I know, for instance, there's somebody in my family who, if I have to ask for help, it takes me weeks to put together a message. Certainly days, often weeks, to put together a message to ask this person for help. I typically now, I just don't because I know where it's going to come. But it's, a, it's the same thing. It's okay, there's a power imbalance here, obviously, right? I mean, sobriety, whatever. All the reasons in the world that I should be able to ask, and in my mind, I should be able to get that. But it doesn't work out that way. But like, it, it got me thinking about that too. It's like, wow, it takes me days to put together a message asking for this, right? And yeah. the feeling that well, you get from that is just awful, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a horrible, shitty feeling, yeah. right? But, well, yeah. I think it very much depends on, obviously, the context of that stuff. You know, you had said earlier, like, you don't want to tell any family members that boundaries aren't okay or anything. But I think you can also have a healthy boundary while naming the power imbalance and being like, I'm not doing this thing to punish you. Yeah. I'm doing this thing to protect me and you ultimately. Right. And you can just name yeah. it like, yeah, I, I realize you're coming to me for help and that I have this choice and I'm going to make the choice I'm going to make. Um, you know, you can do that without wielding the power like a cudgel. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <clears throat> Fair enough. Okay. Um, Unless either one of you has any more you want to touch on with that one, we can we can kind of move forward into the episode. Uh, you asked how I was doing; it was very relevant, and and it's something that I like to talk about anyway. Now, so go ahead, Lisa. Did the, did the deep breath there? No, I was just going to share this one story. Um, I think I've shared it on the podcast before, but you know how like you have these like these events that like really stand out to you, you know, in your life. Mm -hmm. This is one for me. And it's interesting because I feel like to an outsider, it might sound like this somewhat minor insignificant event. But I often say that like one of the things that I think about a lot as a psychiatrist, I have like medical students, I have residents who work with me. And one of the things that I, I've thought about for 10 years is how do I translate to students who don't have experience with addiction in themselves or a loved one? How do I pass on the knowledge that I think I have earned as my brother's sister? That is not something I learned from a book. And what I mean by that is when I see somebody in the emergency department and they're skinny and they're unkept, and their clothes are dirty, and they're, you know, spitting at people, and they're hitting the walls. I look at them, and I'm like, who are you really? Because this is not who you are. I, I'm staring at your disease, which is what I believe it is. I am staring at addiction. This is addiction. And I am always like, who are you really? 
the reason I do that is because I know who my brother is and I know what he has looked like and behaved like in the depths of his addiction. And they are two completely incongruent things. They, there's no alignment there whatsoever. So it's like, how do you take someone who's a learner, who is seeing, seeing a person at their worst and make them truly believe that that's not who they are? That is addiction. That's what you're looking at right now. Um, so I'm always thinking, like, how do I, how do you teach that to people? You know, unless they have seen somebody go from here to here, how do you make them realize that that it changes somebody's behavior and appearances and all of that so much? Um, but so my brother um, had reached out to me years ago, and maybe it, maybe ten years ago. And at the time he was doing pretty well. He was on Suboxone. Um, he was having to drive from Grand Prairie to Red Deer to see a doctor who would prescribe him Suboxone because there was nobody in Grand Prairie who, who would and prescribe it. For context, that's and what, a four or five hour drive, something like that? Six hour drive, maybe? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would say five, six hours probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this, this doctor had kind of said to him, like, okay, like, I'll do this with these conditions, you know, like, basically, don't fuck up, you know, you fuck up, you're gone, right? And he had experienced this at times where he would get kicked out of programs, you know, and so he had developed this trauma response and this fear to people taking away something that was his life depended on. So he was working in the oil field at the time, and he was told he was getting moved from one rig to another rig. And it involved a, an entire change in his shift and his scheduling. So he now needed to go see this doctor who had made it very clear, if you do anything suspicious, if you do anything that makes me think you're, you know, you're, you're diverting, you're whatever it is, you're out. So anyways, my brother, who rarely asks for my help, I mean, I talk about how I'm always willing to help my brother. My brother does not call me up regularly asking for my help. And he called me up and said, can you come to this appointment with me? And I was like, very confused. And I'm like, okay, like, I'll drive from Calgary. I'll meet you in Red Deer. We'll go see this doctor. And I was just kind of like, what is this about? Basically, he wanted me there for backup that the reason he was asking for this shift in his um, prescription and his carries and he needed the, you know, his pickup date changed and all this kind of stuff was legitimate. And so I went to the appointment. I didn't actually end up saying anything, but he wanted me to come with him. Like I actually went into the appointment with him and sat there while he spoke to this doctor. And I will never forget this. I remember watching my brother as he was talking and this like this fear and almost in a pleading sort of way, overcompensating, over explaining, over justifying. And I know that these reasons were valid and real and legitimate. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, this is the saddest thing I have ever watched. 
Like why, like you're terrified that this doctor is not going to help you. And it blew my mind. And again, it's one of those experiences that I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, this is where I've said before, you know, my dad asked me once, are you becoming a doctor to save your brother? And I've said to my dad, I believe my brother is my brother because I am meant to do this work and he has gifted me an experience and knowledge that no textbook would ever give me. And watching him have that conversation that day is one of a number, but one of the most monumental moments I've had as his sister, who is a physician, to just stop and go, holy shit. We are failing people. Like, our job is to help. And a patient should not come to us terrified that we're going to pull the help or refuse to help. It's terrible. Based on some probably moral judgment as opposed to a medical judgment and the fact that your brother recognized that not only does he not have any power but that you would have more power than him if he needed you for backup because that's how powerless he was and how desperate like i can i can feel the desperation right that you're describing in your brother because i've felt that before right um yeah and and we are we are failing people as a as a system for sure and I think, you know, um, this was a conversation I had about two weeks ago where, because of my privilege, um, you know, my brother's living in a different area, needed a doctor. Um, I was able to find somebody who would see him um, and had the opportunity to speak to this doctor and to give some collateral and some background history. And one of the things I said to her and I've never actually, well, maybe I've touched on it, but I have not had in-depth conversations with my brother about this, but I believe that he has incredible medical system trauma from things that he has gone through with the healthcare system in the last 20 something years. You know, um, there was a a case where to get on Suboxone, a clinic up in Edmonton um, refused to give him a prescription or carries for a month So he again left Grand Prairie with a a three-month-old baby, a seven-year-old son who he had to pull out of school, and him and his wife had to stay in an Edmonton hotel for a month because they refused to give him a prescription until he proved to them that he was not going to abuse his Suboxone. I've I've never had that with my asthma inhalers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Right? No. Well yeah. said. Or, or I would doctor... say, even beyond asthma inhalers, what about, you know, again, the, the choice thing, right? It's like asthma, okay, but like what about if we compare it to diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you know, diabetes that you probably have because of a series of many years of lifestyle choices that led you to have diabetes. So do you go into your doctor to get your metformin prescription and do they sit there and go, well, did you eat chocolate in the last month? Not sure. I'm going to give you your metformin. Yeah. Yeah. Hell no. That's it's the moral model in action. It's, it's the stigmatization. It's the, uh, it's the othering of people with addiction, right? And just the, the oppression, it's it's all gross. And that when you're talking about the doctor too and like your brother's desperation, like 
I've seen, and you know, Chuck was talking about when he had the power as the dealer and stuff. And I was that for a long time too. Like I've been that guy who could have pulled the rug out from under someone who was going to be really sick if they didn't get what I had. Um, and so that doctor was like a dope dealer, like essentially, like it's like legal and all that, but it's like, he's using discretion rather than medical interventions. Right. And yeah. based and, and, on and his own biases and, that and power moral imbalance. judgments. It's the same goddamn thing. 100% it's the same thing. Right. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. It would feel like it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To the person experiencing it. So, oh dear. And I, I think you talk about medical trauma. I mean, I've shared my experience in the past in the interest of time. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I, you know, I went in with an abscess from injecting and I was treated like a subhuman being 100%. I was put in a room with a steel door and it was like, uh-uh, you know, you're not closing that fucking door. Right? <laughs> like that's going to bring up a whole new trauma for me. Right. Cause I've done that. Right. But, mm -hmm. Um, it, it is, mm -hmm. that's a very real thing. And perhaps an episode to be, to be done on medical trauma. They said, now that you're talking about that, I think that would be mm -hmm. great. Well, it's, great well there's a segue here because today we were going to talk about EMDR and I have used EMDR a, a surprisingly, a surprising amount of times for people that have been traumatized by the medical system. Absolutely. Um, right. Not necessarily in situations just like this, but in lots of different ways, right? Because, um, yeah, you you don't feel safe. It can be very invasive to your body. It can be invasive, like having to justify, like why you want certain things to be done or whatever. Um, yeah, and it's. I was surprised how many how many clients I've had come and say like the system has failed me in these ways and made me feel these certain things and people that are terrified now of doctors, of dentists and all kinds of different things. No mm -hmm. kidding. No kidding. Right. It's interesting. Cause I feel like there is like a hierarchy with physicians, no matter what, like it doesn't matter what you have, you know, there's, um, I think it's better than it was 50 years ago, I think, but maybe I'm biased. Um, you know, like I feel like back then, you know, the doctor always wore the white coat and it was like everybody had to call them doctor and the doctor knew all things and the doctor was not wrong. I I don't think it's quite the same, you know, like most of the people I work with, like we don't wear white coats. Why? Because it just adds to that power differential. Um, hmm. But I still have nurses who refuse to call me by my first name. And I'm like, you don't need to call me doctor. Like you and I are colleagues, like you can just call me Lisa and they will not do it. So there is that hierarchy. But I think, you know, when you are someone suffering an addiction, wow, do I think that's pronounced? You know, I think it is magnified big time. Big time. Yeah, big time. absolutely. I would yeah. Um, yeah. I've been, you know, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I've, I've been sort of the situation that you were talking about, Chuck, is like walking into a clinic and feeling dirty and less than just because of my substance use disorder at the time, right? That it was active and um, just knowing that, that, you know, there's like signs, like we don't keep drugs here. And like, you know, it's just like the stigma is just baked right into the system when it comes to addiction. And um, I think most people that have any kind of, I mean, I, I've said this lots of times before. I don't even like the word addiction I, I don't, because it's like so stigmatized. But um, if you're living with that, 
everywhere you go, you feel that if you're going into a restaurant, if you go into a 7-Eleven or something and people are keeping their eyes on you and like, you know, it's just like constantly that stigmatization and feeling less than. And when you're coming up, like if, if a if a 7-Eleven employee can make me feel less than and they don't really have a lot of power over me, what can a doctor do, right? Mm. What can right. police do? <laughs> what can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I have a question. I know we want to talk about EMDR, so this will be my last question about this. Um, but as people who have that lived experience, um, who are in recovery, who have done trauma work, who are trauma-trained therapists, like, what do you, like, if, if there are physicians, if there are healthcare professionals, if there are pharmacists, like, listening to this, like, what would you say, like, what are things, and again, I know it's a broad question, and we could talk about it for forever, but like, what are things like, or pieces of advice that you would give that you think would help to decrease, because we're not going to eliminate it, but would help to decrease that sense of that power differential that I think negatively impacts people in recovery seeking help or reaching out for help? I think you answered this question already I mean, earlier, Lisa. It's a right? right. Name it, own it. Maybe right. Yeah. I, 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 I think I you, also you think like. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. For a medical professional, I think like if you could illustrate for them the difference, like you know, and and I love it, and I've used it for years too. Um, the diabetes, you know, it's like this is caused through behaviors. You know what I mean? There might be some predisposition or whatever, but you know, lifestyle choices and behaviors that have you in this situation with this illness, um, does a doctor treat them any different? So then, you know, maybe if you could illustrate to them, like, do you do that in any kind of way? Um, but I also think like, like do doctors take a Hippocratic oath and they, they should do no harm and they should like be, you know, patient centered and, um, like, leave your biases at the door and just see the person as a human being and that they're struggling with something. And I mean, it's easy for me to say that, but like bring empathy to your work, because I think, you know, whenever I hear you speak, Lisa, that's what I hear that you do. Right. Um, and I know I try very hard to do that myself. And the thing about addiction is it, you know, comes with a ton of really shit behaviors. Right. So it's easy to be like quite judgmental and get on that moral sort of model of it, that like addicts are bad people and stuff, but Mm-hmm. but they're not right. And um, yeah, I don't know, like if people are working with addiction and don't have that, maybe my advice would be like, get a different job or work <laughs> yeah. in a different area of medicine. Right. Like go, I mean, it's, I, I remember when I did some work for the college of physicians and surgeons in BC training um, prescribers and, and pharmacists around methadone, this was probably like 18 years ago or something like that. And um, I got to role play as an addict. And it, um, I, I had a <laughs> I got scenario this, behind yeah. me and I got to come in and yeah. Um, they're like, do you think you can do that? I'm like, yeah, I think I can probably do that. Um, and so with my scenario, what was happening is this doctor should have cut off my carries, right? Because I had tested positive and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's the scenario that w- that I was given to play up. And by the end of it, like, you know, and this is in front of a room full of doctors. Dr. Sobe was the one that got me in uh-huh. there running it. It was amazing. Um, and uh, the, the doctor said, like, 
can you give this woman some feedback? And I said, you know, and, and this is me like a couple of years clean, working at like a 12 step recovery house, a little bit of education at that point, but not very much, not very much experience and everything. And I was, you know, the, here's the power imbalance. I was like, I can't, I literally said, I can't tell her. And he said, no, you have to tell her, tell her what you think. And I said, like, if this is how you're going to treat people, you're in the wrong job. Like this is like, you just mm -hmm. gave me not only let me keep my carries, but increased my dose of methadone when I tested positive for cocaine. Like, why would you increase the, you know, I was like, you just don't understand it. And it wasn't about the stigma or anything. It was just that she didn't get it. And I think that maybe some people should specialize in other areas um, or get more education about it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, I think at that time, uh, Paul told me that going through medical school, like how long do you go and do fellowships and placements and like all the, like, like 10 years to be able to be a doctor. And he told me it was like an hour and a half on addictions in that 10 years or some like crazy little amount. And I was like, Oh my God, like I know infinitely more about addiction than most doctors. And that's just from living it. Right. Um, so I think like, if you're going to work with it, you should probably learn about it. Could you imagine like some me go like, a doctor who's like a GP all of a sudden, like doing, you know, neural surgery or something on someone like, it's like, mm -hmm. that's not your specialty. You should probably learn about it before you get your hands in there. And maybe that's the advice I would give is like, learn about it or get well, out of to it. use the fallback. Right? Yeah. I don't think it should be part of an GP hour and, work. Half and then telling me about my diet. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And then just shaming the you for the choices call. you've made. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, listen, I, we, we do need to, to segue and Mike, you had a beautiful segue there. Then we took and we, we, we turned it into a ramble, but you had a beautiful segue into the MDR. I ruined it. Uh, <laughs> you kind of did, kind of did, but that's okay. I'm not going to shame you for it. Right? Um, this is like, Hey, I have hosts, <laughs> you have co-hosts. Like this is the only power balance I will ever have. Right. So I'm going to exploit the shit out of this right now. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just take the reins. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, listen, we, it's the round. This is, this is the third part of the further. series. Um, whether it's the final part, I don't know, but it's, it's the third part in, in this series on trauma. And in our first episode, guys, if you go back and listen to it, it's episode 207. It was about uh, internal family systems therapy as, as Mike practices that at, at, his, at, at the Autry Treatment Center. Um, and in the second episode, episode 209, was about cognitive behavior therapy as Mike practices that or modality and we're going to say what i'll say it the best for last at least my favorite of the processes that happened there um because it was so profound um the, the emdr the eye movement desensitization reprocessing there um i'll speak to to my quick experience here mike and we have a laugh about this we have multiple times um so my first one and, and i'll just lay out how it happened as as i remember it my first one my first session with EMDR, uh, you know, I, you had asked me to, to write down the names of some events. It's not, not a description, not anything of the sort, just the names. And I could have called it orange, but we just needed yeah, something titles. to refer to it, right? Yeah, a title. Um, for me, it, it was an event where I'd, you know, taken hostage and I, I knew I was going to, and this is way more information than I gave Mike in the session. I knew I was going to die half a dozen times that night. It was absolutely horrifying, terrifying, and has affected me and kept me a prisoner in my mind and even my home for a long time. 
Your body. It, it, my, most certainly my body. All I had to do was give it a name. Okay, so we, I think I called it the hostage. Is that what I said? I think, I, I think that's what it was. After a 20-minute session of EMDR, I looked at Mike and I went, fuck you. <laughs> I was just completely taken back by how much better I felt thinking about it. Right? It wasn't gone. The memory wasn't gone. And that's not the promise made. And I, I don't know if promise is the right word anyway, but it, it was certainly like the memory was still there, but it was, I was able to talk about it. I'm able to, like just now, there's no way six months ago I have this conversation the way that I have right now. There's no way. Right? Um, Jesus, there's just no way. Right? So, and, and now if I get emotional about it, it's about the relief. It's not about, you know, because it's like, it just, it was so profound to me. So, Mike, I really do want to talk about EMDR, and like I said, and I'll call it the best for last. Goddamn, I will. Um, I think it's interesting how it all mes meshes in together. Well, it's my favorite. So, <laughs> it is. It is. And we've talked about it on the show before, but we've never talked yeah. about it um, in a way that I experienced it. So now we've got some real context to, to, to go into it. So, let's, let's, what's EMDR, yeah. Mike? Well, I mean, there's a. Well, I I could talk about it forever because there's like a lot of different aspects of it that are sort of important to talk about. So, you know, uh, Francine Shapiro was this as legend has it. And it's it's true, but I might get some of the details of it off because it's been sort of verbally passed along. Um, she's a psychologist. She's uh, also does research and stuff. So she's walking. She's having a shit day. So she goes home after work and she's walking her dogs. And she's in the park and she finds her eyes kind of going back and forth and she's soothing herself and she's going like, oh, I wonder what that's about. Because she's a psychologist and because she's a researcher, she gets very curious about what's going on. And she's dealing with very complex clients, trauma clients. So this is in 1987. Um, there was no, re like the understanding of trauma back then was a lot less. Um, <laughs> effective treatments for trauma, a lot less. Um, so she just started sort of like working with her clients and being like, if I'm moving my eyes and it's giving me, it's soothing me, like maybe I could get some relief from or for my clients from, from what they're dealing with. Um, and so I'm sure that there's like a lot of different iterations of what she did when she first came up with it, it was called EMD. There was no R, which is reprocessing. That wasn't part of the process, but um, so she started practicing and essentially like, she, she needed to write, like, in order to write and be published um, in any kind of, like, medical journals or psych psychological journals, she had to have a theory about why it was working. Because she was getting good results. Like, people were getting the results that you were just saying. And what we know now, the evidence shows us that EMDR will do basically three things. Um, it will make memories harder to recall. So, like, usually if we're, they're traumatic memories, it's like, it's almost like they're stored in short-term memory, not in long-term. So they get quite intrusive and they come back at us like flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, like around memories. And um, so they become harder to recall. So they're not as intrusive. Um, they're less vivid. So like the colors and textures and smells and sounds and that kind of stuff gets desensitized um, and less disturbing. So you don't, when we talk about disturbance in EMDR, we always call it SUDS, subjective units of disturbance from zero to 10. Zero is calm, neutral, no disturbance. 10 is the most you can imagine. Um, when we talk about disturbance, I a lot of times with clients, I'll do like a little um, experiment, if you will. 
and I'll sit with a client and I'll say, okay, so if I was to say to you, yes, 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 what do you feel in your body? And most people go, nothing. I don't really feel anything. And I go, and I don't even have to do it. But I say, if I was to raise my voice and lean in and go, no, 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 what would you, and so many people go, oh, that thing in my chest, it's like, oh, that's the disturbance, right? Because say we're doing a memory on a hostage taking, we're not making that, we're not erasing the memory. We're not making it a happy memory. Uh, what we're doing is we're, we're desensitizing it and making it less intrusive so that when you want to think about it, you can go back and think about it, but it won't come with that gut punch kind of feeling. And you'll have an appropriate emotional response, which will be like, that was sad or that was scary, but I'm not living it right now. Um, our hippocampus, you know, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but this is what I was taught by a neuroscientist, and it's probably pretty simplistic. But when um, when you used to take photographs with film cameras and you take it into like a photo mat and then you get the photos back on the back, they would have like a timestamp on it, a digital like in red timestamp. <clears throat> and the way I was taught is that when your memories are being stored, um, they're supposed to have timestamps on them. Like this is when it happened and this is what it ended, but traumatic memories don't get that last timestamp. So like you don't, your brain doesn't know that that memory's over, which is why we keep reliving these traumatic events and why we get nightmares and flashbacks and intrusive thoughts. So EMDR as a process is called adaptive information processing. And for lack of a better word, we're attaching those memories to adaptive information that we have now um, and storing them away in long-term. And I'll talk about like what that means, adaptive information. So say um, I was taken hostage. I'll just use that. If I can use that as the example, kind of continuously through this, I'm going to have a negative belief about myself based on that memory. Whenever we have a tra traumatic memory and we're processing it with EMDR. So this is the thing Chuck said, we didn't, he didn't tell me all that stuff. We don't. EMDR is a very strict protocol. We go, what's the target memory? hostage shaking. What image represents the most disturbing part of that memory? And he just tells me the image, you know, with all the vivid sensory stuff, what sounds go with it, what smells, all that. What's the negative belief that goes with that image about you today? Or what words go best with that image that describe your negative belief about yourself today? So I would say it would be something like, I'm not safe, right? But actually you are safe. The adaptive information is I'm safe. But when I think about that memory, it's like, I don't feel safe. It doesn't feel true that I'm safe. I want to believe that I'm safe. So when we do the EMDR, um, the, the, the eye movements or any other kind of what we call bilateral stimulation, which was what Francine Shapiro's theory of how it works was, um, it's like we attach that memory to this new information, which is like, Oh, actually, I am safe. So we desensitize it so it doesn't feel the gut punch. So that EM stands for eye movements, D stands for desensitization, less vivid, harder to recall, less disturbing. Um, and then the reprocessing is I get a new understanding or belief about that memory. So, you know, if I'm abandoned when I'm five years old and I have this belief about that is like I'm not lovable, then as an adult, I'm 53 years old, I go, well, actually, people do love me. And when I think about that memory now, I can actually believe that when as before I couldn't, right? So that's the R part of it. Um, so I'm going to go back. She needed to have a theory about why it worked. And now for a quick PSA brought to you by Revolution Recovery. 
helping men recover and become their best selves through support and treatment. They've been there, and they understand. Hey everyone, this is Ryan Bathgate from Kaleidoscope Wednesdays. I wanted to bring a public service announcement to you today about Narcan, or also known as Naloxone. These kits uh, have saved so many lives over the years. Uh, I can attest for that. Uh, being in the industry for so long, I can tell you since we've had the opioid crisis declared in 2016, it has saved thousands of lives, and I've watched it personally save hundreds of lives. These kits are small, easy to use. Uh, you can keep them in your glove box or uh, or in a cupboard in your home, and you never know when somebody's going to need them. Uh, if you have a hard time finding a Narcan kit in your area, just email us here at Ashes to Awesome Podcast at gmail.com. Throw Narcan in the subject line, tell us where you are, and we'll do the legwork to find that for you. If you wanted to send me a question for my Kaleidoscope Wednesdays, again, email Ashes to Awesome Podcast at gmail.com. We will read that question on air, and I'll do my best to answer it in a comprehensive way. Uh, that's all I have for now, and we'll go back to the show. Thanks for listening. She had to have a theory to get published about um, how it was working because she got good results. Other people were um, probably in need of this you know, great tool, but <clears throat> she had to theorize how it was working, why it was working. She knew it was working but she didn't know exactly why. So she came up with bilateral stimulation, um, stimulating both hemispheres of the brain. And that's uh, connecting uh, the memories to the adaptive information and desensitizing and doing all the things that I've kind of rambled on about. Now, um, a lot of people read her papers on it and were, this sounds amazing and started doing the work with their clients and, and replicating her results. And a lot of people, I think, were probably like, um, this sounds like crazy because it's 1987 and what we do is talk therapy um, and psychoanalysis and we don't do this like waving our fingers in people's faces while they're not talking about the memory, like literally <laughs> intentionally not talking about the memory. Um, and yet they, they kept replicating a result. So like EMDR has one of the biggest bodies of evidence um, for, for psychotherapies showing that it works. Later on, um, there was a, a British guy who happened to be in the United States and he became a fan of college football, excuse me. And he was um, listening to a game driving along and he was visualizing what was happening in the game and his driving got really erratic. And then he stopped listening to it and his driving got smooth. And he, he came up with what's called the working memory theory, which is like you have long-term memory, which is vast and can have millions of bits of information in it. And then you have like this working memory where you can only hold a few things at the same time. You know, if you think about when you're driving along, looking at like a house address, you like turn down the music. Or if you're like counting and someone next to you is going like 6, 13, 24, like you lose it a bit. Like you're, you can't do all of this stuff at the same time. So some EMDR therapist theorized that, well, that's actually why the memories are getting desensitized. It's because you're taxing your working memory through memory taxing tasks, one of which is following the fingers with the eyes while thinking of an image and <clears throat> noticing what's happening in your body, 
and that what's happening is your brain can't do all of that stuff. So, so something has to give and what gives is um, the vividness of this memory. Now we know it works. There's so much evidence that it works. And these are these two sort of prevailing theories about why it works. So in my work, what I do is because I'm a belt and suspenders kind of guy, um, I do both. So I will do bilateral stimulation and I will add other memory taxing tasks, including like tapping a very simple rhythm, spelling words forwards and backwards, humming, like there's lots of different things that we can do. Um, there's different forms of bilateral stimulation. So you can like tap, it's called a butterfly hug, lots of different ways to do it. Um, but the end result is uh, generally speaking, I get people, I mean, minus the fuck you part, I get a lot of what uh, Chuck <laughs> tells me, which is that um, it doesn't bother me as much anymore. A lot of times what I'll get people saying is it feels farther away. Like when I look at it, it's harder to bring it up and it feels farther away. Or they'll say it's blurrier or it's like um, there's like a sheer curtain in front of it. Like lots of different ways to describe like that it just isn't so in their face all the time. So when I um, first got trained in EMDR about eight years ago, um, I, I went to Hong Kong to get trained in it. And the place I worked for was sending me. And I was a super skeptic. Like, I am just absolutely a skeptic of anything that I can't, like, touch or, you know, and I, th I was like, you know, I'd been a, a, a counselor and a talk therapist for, like, 10 years at that point. And I was like, this sounds like a bunch of garbage, but free trip to Hong Kong, sign me up, right? I'm in. And a, a couple of guys from work uh, went there with me and, and a woman from work that was already in Hong Kong. We all met there and had a great little time. And we worked with each other. And not, I mean, us all that attended, not me and the guys I was at work with, but um, this was my experience on day one as a super skeptic. And it's a very strict protocol. And so I'm going off a piece of paper and I'm like, okay, am I supposed to like move my fingers now? Is this how I do it? Really clunky. Like it didn't flow and I didn't know what I was doing. Real neophyte EMDR therapist, no idea what I'm doing. And the woman that I was working with she um, was having a struggle because her fiance or her boyfriend was wanting to ask her, like, we should get married. But she, she, it was like a gut punch to her because um, a memory that she had was her last fiance. She walked into their apartment and he was cheating on her uh, on the sofa with somebody. And <clears throat> that was the image she had in her mind. The belief was I'm not lovable. And I'm going, how do I do this? Uh, you know, and she was like quite distressed by it. Within 20 minutes, um, she said it didn't bother her anymore. The, the image wasn't so vivid. She went up to her room. Um, the next day she came back down and I asked her, I checked in because it's EMDR's eight phases. The eight phases reevaluation. So you always come back after and go, you know, how are you after the last session? How's that memory? And she said, um, I felt so good and I talked to my boyfriend and we're going to get married. And that was like, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. And that took 20 minutes. And my first experience as the client was someone else who also didn't know what they were doing. Um, he said, you know, okay, so, so what's the image, blah, blah, blah. And I had an image from when I was 15 years old. And at the time I was like 45. So this is like a 30 year old memory. And how, how disturbing is it? I said like five out of 10. And he, 
and he asked me, what do you know this now? Because that's EMDR language. You know, what do you know this? And I said, what I noticed was the thought in my head. I said, this isn't going to work. And he said, what EMDR therapist? I said, okay, just go with that. Meaning just notice that's what you're thinking is. And he just went again. What do you notice now? And I said, yeah, this might work for other people. Definitely not going to work for me. And he went, okay, go with that. What do you notice now? And I went, oh, I feel like I have this big grapefruit in my throat. Like all of a sudden I was getting physical sensations. <clears throat> what do you notice now? And just kept going, kept going. He wasn't asking me about the memory or doing any of that stuff. And I'm in my head. I'm kind of going like, this is crazy, but I really am noticing some stuff in my body. Within half an hour, that memory didn't bother me anymore. Um, I had a different belief about myself in relation to that memory. And to this day, eight years later, that memory doesn't bother me anymore. And it's like really changed a lot of uh, the impact of what that memory had on relationships at work and stuff like that. that it, like what I saw my value as at work, a lot of that stuff changed. And this is someone who day one didn't know what they were doing, had just been trained. Um, so at that point, I was like, okay, I've gone from a skeptic to a believer within like two days of training. I was like, okay, this is happening. One of my colleagues had just been in the uh, earthquakes in Nepal. And he was um, having a struggle being in a, in a higher up building that we were in, like we were in a library building. And he saw the the trainer after, and I don't know exactly what happened um, between them because I wasn't there. But the next day he seemed to be quite fine. And so I was like, okay, so I've seen some pretty profound things really quickly with this therapy. Um, and so, you know, I became a big believer. And when Chuck said, you know, save the best one for last, it transformed my practice at that point. I was like, I love EMDR. I'm going to focus on trauma because all the people that I met at, this is at a rehab center where I worked. All the people that I met had some form of underlying trauma or negative beliefs about themselves. Because as we talked about last week, you can use EMDR in so many different protocols, including um, to desensitize negative beliefs or memories that, that support negative beliefs you have about yourself. So it that is where I have way more. I can go on and on. You guys yeah. got to jump in. It's just me talking. <laughs> well, and that's, I have, I have a question. Actually, um, yeah. Let's, let's do your questions first. Cause they're going to be about EMDR and I, I want to talk about some other stuff. So yes, please do. Yeah. So I am not trained in EMDR or ART. Um, we do have a, a psychiatrist who's trained in ART. So again, different, but I think similar in many ways. Um, and I, I find in the day hospital that I work in so much trauma, like, you know, either childhood stuff that's driven personality development or acute traumas or whatever. And so I'll have her come in and I'm kind of like, you, Mike, like I hear about it and I'm just like, it sounds kind of wild, but I'll consult with her to see patients to do this trauma work and I'll see them after a session. And it's just like, like, like I, there's not another modality of therapy where I see such an acute change after so little time, after so few sessions, you know, and I'll see people who are like on antidepressants and benzos and they're tremulous and they're like so traumatized. And it like, I'll never forget this one guy and this trauma was like, 20 years old and he was like a non-functional human being who couldn't leave his house it was like an effort for us to get him to day hospital one session of this sort of trauma work 
And he came in. He's like, I'm good. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, are you for real? Like, you're like, is this for real? And it's for real. And I like, I'm the same. Like I see it over and over and over and like see the effect. Um, and yeah, so it, I do think it, it's like mind blowing work. And like we said, like even with theories, like I don't think we fully get how mm. this is doing what it's doing, but it's doing it. And so yep. let's just run with it, right? Question for you, like with the belief piece, some of mm. them I feel like I can like, I can think, okay, I can imagine what the belief might be. Like, you know, I'm not safe in the example that mm. you've been using. What about like, what are the common beliefs that you hear from people whose trauma is related to witnessing something? And mm. I, I can see again how it could be, well, an I'm not safe thing, but what about when, Powerless. Um, okay. I, a yeah. lot of, so there's different, um, mm. and I, I could send it to you. So I have like a little uh, prompt. Like if you looked up, if you Googled um, uh, common positive and negative cognitions for EMDR, it's online. And so they'll have them and it comes in different sort of uh, headings of like responsibility, control, power. So it's like, I should have mm. done something, right? Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm not good enough. Like, you know, if it's witnessed, it would depend obviously on the context mm -hmm. of that. But I think there's going to be some stuff, helpless, powerless. Because um... I'm thinking of a case that I have right now. And she actually just had her intake to do trauma therapy with the psychiatrist um, yesterday. Mm. And the session itself will happen next week. But her trauma was walking in on her sister who had suicided. Mm. Um and her sister was deceased when she found her. Um, and no one would question that that's clearly incredibly traumatizing. But I had not sure. really thought about, like, what's her belief about herself in that? But yeah. I suspect it's probably in that powerless. I realm. should have done something. Yeah. something. yeah. A lot of people, survivor guilt stuff, like possibly that yeah. stuff, right? Um, but what I do is a lot of the times I will bring out that prompt sheet and I'll say, look, I want you to pay attention to kind of what's happening in your body, holding that image. Cause we always go with one image, the most disturbing part. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to read down this and let me know what resonates, like what mm -hmm. feels like that. Ugh, right. Um, and I would just go down it. And some of them don't feel even like, you know, one of the ones that's on there is, um, you know, like I'm not lovable. Like that might not resonate if you, if with this client that you're talking about, but mm -hmm. definitely I would think some of the stuff about control and the power stuff, like, um, you know, and the guilt then, and yeah. So it's not my, or, you know, it's my fault. I'm a bad yeah. sister. Um, you know, um, I've let her down. I always let people down. Like, you know, there's, those aren't necessarily on the list like that, but you could definitely like find a way mm -hmm. into that stuff. Um, and then after they have the negative belief, we go, well, what's the preferred positive? What's the belief you prefer to have, right? So let's say, you know, in, in the example, if I've been taken hostage and my belief is I, I'm not safe, when I think about that image, that feels true. I'm not safe. Well, what would I like to feel true? Well, I'd like it to feel true that I am safe. How true does that feel on a scale of one to seven? One being false, seven being true. Well, it feels false because they can't both feel true. I'm unsafe and I'm safe. So that becomes a treatment goal. We want to, we're going to change that belief from I'm unsafe to I am safe. And mm -hmm. it's funny because like a lot of times by the time you desensitize it, 
and it's connecting to adaptive information. I don't even have to ask. I go, how true does it feel? Like, well, I know I'm safe now. You know, like, I, like I wasn't safe then, but I am safe now. Like, I get that. You know, um, and that takes like no prompting and no no more. We do do some like eye movements if that doesn't feel completely true, but a lot of times it just feels true once you've done the reprocessing. Because when you're exploring that belief, is it? <clears throat> Is it the belief when you think about the memory or are you focused on the belief that they have there in the moment sitting with you? So it's a strict protocol and it's um, it's worded quite specifically. And it says what words go best with that image that describe your negative belief about yourself now? So first person, present tense, a lot of I am, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be but it matches that image. It feels true with that image. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people will be like, well, I know I'm safe now. So, okay. So it's not, I'm not safe, you know, and then we go through and we try to find the right negative cognition. And we always, sometimes that can take quite a bit of time. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of like finding a core belief in the, in the CBT stuff. Like it can be, you got to find the right one. Um, And it's, it's pretty powerful stuff when that stuff shifts. Mm-hmm. And like, I was just going to say too, that that is what I hear. Cause like they, they go and they do the ART as an add on to the work that they're doing with me. And so I get oh, to see the them like time pre-ART, you I get ART. to see them post ART. And... Lisa, that's the second time you referenced oh, sorry. ART. So it's, what, um, what are we talking about there? Accelerated resolution therapy. I had a moment there. Where I was like, what is it again? Okay. Okay. Accelerated resolution therapy. So like, I don't want us to derail off the EMDR, but they're very similar, right? And so it's just, I, I say ART because the lady that's trained in the clinic that I'm in, she's not trained in EMDR. She's trained in ART, but very similar, right? Okay. Yeah, there's some similarities um, for sure. Okay. Yeah, and and what I find the same is that when I see them after the the messaging and again like what Mike is saying is what they'll say to me is well I like I still remember like I still have the memory right like we're not going in and like wiping people's memories out they're like I still remember it but now when I talk about it I don't get like a physical reaction in my body I don't start to psychologically feel scared and anxious and distressed Um, they'll tell me like suddenly places I was avoiding, like I couldn't walk through that door of the hospital because it's somehow linked to the trauma. Well, I walked through that door the other day and I was like, "Hmm." like I'm here and I I feel okay. Um, So very sort of. I had someone who um, had electrocuted themselves in the backyard of their home and uh ended up becoming disfigured by it and like thought they were going to die and all that kind of stuff and um we did a half hour emdr session with a plan to do more um and i contacted them maybe like three days after the session and just said like hey you know like how's it going blah 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 oh i went home and went in there and everything's fine like literally couldn't go in the backyard bought the house and was like heartbroken that they couldn't go into their own backyard that was their forever home and all that stuff. Half an hour later, boom, walked in. Oh yeah, I forgot to call you. Everything's fine now. Like, oh, okay. And I'll tell you, I have these moments where I'm like, really? Like, really? Um, You know, I sit down with someone and we're talking about childhood sexual abuse stuff. Not talking about it, sorry. We're we're processing it. Um, The end of the hour, 
that disturbance level has gone from 10 to zero and their belief about themselves has gone from feeling completely false to feeling completely true, whatever that belief is. And like, that's a memory that's been around for like decades. Right. And it doesn't, we're not erasing the memories. That's actually really important to point out too. A lot of people, if what they're processing is the loss of a loved one, they feel or maybe a part of them feels like they will be betraying that loved one, or they're afraid that they're going to um, uh, like forget about them if they process the memory. And so I, I quite often liken it to um, like a log jam. When they think about that loved one, they always think about the loss. Like that's the first thing that pops into their mind is the loss. And then when we do the processing, it's like a log jam in a river. And as we process, it like opens up and all this other stuff comes through. So now when they think about them, they think about like all these amazing, good, happy memories that they haven't had access to because the loss was front and center blocking that river. Um, And I've seen that happen a lot. So during the processing, what do you notice now? And they're like, oh, I thought about this time with them. That was like really amazing when we were like kids or whatever. Oh, okay, go with that. And we just go again. What do you notice now? And all of a sudden, like all of these positive memories are coming up um, that they didn't have access to at the beginning because anytime they thought of that person, they had this debilitating like sadness and grief and just like, you know, again, I always say the word gut punch, but people understand what that means, I think. Um, and that's, you know, so now not only are you not forgetting them, you're not betraying their memory, but you're actually getting access to like way more of the good memories about why you feel that loss in the first place. Cause you're so close to these people. Right. So Mike, I have yeah, to how ask do you if, deal if, like, if, um, oh, like, I, I'm going to ask about this one real quick. Lisa, Sorry. Anyway. Um, well, if you do, not, yeah. I'm ask, so, um, it's <laughs> power <laughs> balance. <laughs> It's I get them rarely, right? So anyway, um, longevity of of the effectiveness. I'm sure there's papers written, and I, I'm sure there's all sorts of evidence to back it up. In your experience, and and with with the evidence available, how how is that? How how is the longevity of the effectiveness? Enduring. Um, you know, like I say, my very first experience with someone who'd never done it before. Yeah the first day that I did it, like as a client, that memory was 30 years old, eight years later, doesn't bother me. Um, my experience. So this is the eight phase. Everyone thinks EMDR is literally just the fourth phase, which is this. I mean, anyone who knows about EMDR, I get clients coming in and they go, I want to do EMDR. And they think it's just this. The eighth phase is always the reevaluation where you go back and say, okay, that memory that we worked on, you said it was at zero. How's it at now? You know, I'll tell people, like, think about it in between sessions. Like, you know, if it's obviously disturbing, because I always go like, you know, it's our brain and our brains are very complex. Anything could happen kind of, you know, but mm-hmm. in, in the eight years or so that I've been doing EMDR, I've never had someone come back and say that memories that we've processed have become more disturbing later. But what can happen is when we're dealing with complex PTSD, people might have multiple memories around, um, say, for example, like this family member. Um, And if you process one, like it might not feel disturbing at the end of the session, but that family member isn't going to all of a sudden feel safe. You've got more stuff you have to process. So complex PTSD can take a longer time because it's, um, you know, there's quite often 
a lot more frequency and and over a longer time span. So you know, it's complex, right? One off like PTSD, like if someone was in a plane crash, like that stuff. In my experience, we can like clear that up like really quick. Criterion A symptoms, nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, that stuff goes away like really, really fast. Um, and I, I don't have people come back and tell me that it's sort of undone itself, right? And so, yeah, that's my experience. I mean, I, there might be papers written to the contrary, but I don't know that people would be writing those papers, but it's not been my experience. And I don't know anyone in any of the EMDR circles that I circulate in that report that. Okay. I think it's just, you don't want to, be naive enough to think that everything is straightforward and you have to be quite aware that if it's, if we're dealing with CPTSD, then it's going to be more complex and it's going to take more time. Fair enough. Fair enough. Lisa, what were you going to ask? What was I going to ask? Oh yeah. How do you, um, like, again, I'm thinking about this particular patient right now, but one of the things, you know, her and I in one of our sessions explored this, this trauma and and she does have symptoms that are in keeping right now with active PTSD related to finding her sister deceased. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, for me, the next question is, do you want to do ART, right? Is that something mm. you're interested yeah. in? Do you want to explore it? And she did. And then she said to me, you know, what you kind of touched on about sort of that that guilt that can kind of come along with healing herself yep. and what she sort of described for me. So this, this sister had, you know, intentionally suicided. It had been planned out for many weeks from information she'd kind of pieced together. She had left a suicide note. She had left suicide videos, like saying goodbye to people. Um, and what yeah. my patient said to me is she was suffering and so I should suffer mm. and feel pain around her loss. Like there was that thing of I'm doing my sister a disservice yeah. if I release the suffering that comes from finding her after yeah. her suicide. So, and so, so we would, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you, you um, go. You know exactly where I'm kind of going with that. Yeah. But We call that a blocking belief. So there's three things that will kind of, impede the processing of EMDR. So if we're going along and someone's stuck, it's like, well, I feel like I should still be upset about this. Okay, notice that. And you go again, what do you notice now? Yeah, I, I if I'm not still upset, I'm, I'm, you know, betraying her memory or, you know, whatever the, the language might be. At that point, we kind of figure out like, um, there's a blocking belief of like, I should still be suffering. And then we do like cognitive interweaves, which is basically like interjecting um, almost like uh, disputes from uh, from uh, CBT or educational mm -hmm. things okay. or like there's different interweaves that we do, the two-handed interweave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes um, the other things that will get in the way other than a blocking belief is a feeder memory. So that wouldn't be suitable in this or wouldn't fit in this. But say I've had six car crashes and we start processing car crash number one. And as we're processing, the person says, oh, yeah, I was thinking about car crash number three. And I go, okay, notice that. We go again. What do you notice now? Yeah, car crash number three. I'm like, okay, notice that. Let's go again. What do you notice now? And they go, yeah, car crash number three. I go, okay, we're going to park car crash number one. We got to process car crash number three. We're in this memory network, but it's sort of taking over. So we would go to that one. Once that one's done, we'll go back to car crash number one. Um, 
that's just about like target sequence planning about like, we've just picked the wrong one to start with, not through any, you know, we just, we didn't know. And so we started with that one. Now we'll go to this one and then we'll go back. The third thing, third thing that can get in the way of processing or can impede it is parts. If a part of oh. me is resistant to healing because it holds a belief of this, or if a part of me is scared to do the work or, you know, then um, we use some IFS and, you know, at the end of the day, maybe just ask that part to step back for an hour and it can come back and protect that person at the end of the hour. Or, you know, we find a way to sort of deal with that part. Um, hmm. Yeah. Things can, can kind of happen sometimes where you have to finesse it, if you will. Right. But there's, yeah. there's um, different ways to do that. One of the interweaves that I use, it's actually a set of four interweaves that I, I learned from a guy named Adi Young in the Netherlands um, is uh, say the memory was from, I was 16 years old and it's me and my sister. I would say if you from today could walk back into that memory, what do you need to say to your sister? I want you to visualize that while you follow my fingers. And then it's the next one is what would you need to physically do with that person? And then what do you need to go back and say to yourself? And what do you need to do physically with yourself? A lot of the time, um, you know, if it's a perpetrator, it'd be like telling them off, like protecting yourself like you couldn't back then. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if it was this, if it was this loss, it might be like saying things like that didn't get to be said, right? The physical stuff might be like hugging them with a the perpetrator. It might be like throwing them off a balcony. Like, you know, it depends on who it is and the stuff with themselves. A lot of the times it's like, they're reassuring, like you got this, you're going to be okay. Um, and the physical stuff they do with themselves a lot is take them out of there. And a lot mm -hmm. of the, like, you know, visualize taking them out of there into a safe place. Um, and then at the end of those four interweaves, I go, okay, let's go back to the first image. And then we start going again and that will move something in there. Um, so there's like lots of different ways that we can kind of work around this stuff. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. So it's very cool. I, cool. I am never at a loss for, for um, being happy with the outcomes that people report. And that's all, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's why we do what we do is to get good outcomes. Right. And it's increased the positive outcomes of my work. I will also say this. There are different protocols to EMDR. What I've been describing is called standard protocol, but we've got a bunch of addictions protocols. So like we can desensitize, instead of desensitizing a painful traumatic past, we can desensitize euphoric feelings around drugs. So we can go back to first use and desensitize that. We can also desensitize triggers and cravings, and we can um, do what we call a flash forward, and we can go forward and desensitize fears. So yeah, with with the um, it's called so there's one protocol that's called detour, which is desensitizing triggers and urges. There's ones that called um, uh, maladaptive positive affect. So it's like desensitizing the the euphoric feelings for the drugs, so that people get less triggered by it. So like it's yeah, there's tons of stuff. The flash forward um, is like if you have an irrational fear of something, or maybe it's a rational fear, but if you have a fear of something, like I have to go home from treatment and I'm going to have to engage with my parents and they're going to scream at me and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, so we can actually desensitize the fear of that. And then we, it, we, we, um, 
also want to install resources that you can take with you into that situation. Like there's, there's so many applications of EMDR, including what we talked about last time, which is desensitizing memories that support core beliefs that are negative. Um, and that's one of the things I could. So the, the second phase of EMDR is like client preparation. So we do a history taking, and then we do client preparation, which includes education, all the stuff I'm talking about today. Um, and we also do like grounding and resourcing and stuff. So there's a lot of like mindfulness, um, the yoga, the Tai Chi, the sound bowls, like all the stuff that we do at the center when people are like, I want to do EMDR. And it's like, you've been doing EMDR this whole time. You're just doing phase two. You just don't know it because you think this is EMDR, but it's actually, you have to be prepared to walk into this work. Right. Um, so it all kind of goes part and parcel with the rest of the stuff that we're doing. Yeah. It's, it's I love EMDR. It's very cool. But it, it yeah, like I think it. too, one of the things I'm learning from listening to you is that I think as well, like I have this very narrow view on what EMDR is capable of, right? And I think last hmm. week I mentioned that, like I was like, wow, the idea of doing EMDR to work around these negative core beliefs, like, you know, it, it just opens it up. And then now hearing you specifically talk about being able to use EMDR. And yes, we talk often about how a lot of people who suffer with addiction, you know, do have traumas in their past. And for a lot of people, the reason they're using substances is to try to cope with these traumas that haven't been addressed or haven't been worked through with something like EMDR. But then the add-on that you can work around the euphoric memories from first use or things around urges and cravings and triggers and desensitizing those, like and that's huge. And we use it with motivational interviewing to increase their motivation. Like, how much do you want to make the change? And we use eye movements to move that along too, to get them more motivated and stuff. So, oh yeah, it's funny. I'm going to do Ryan and Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Just before I left, um, we're doing I, a different. Before... So I train. Go ahead. Okay. I'll, I'll oh, I was just going to say just to Lisa about the addiction stuff. I have a, a psychologist friend in Australia that's an EMDR practitioner, trainer, consultant, and um, I sort of ride shotgun with her and we train psychologists around Australia in uh, addictions protocols. We do it, we've probably done it four times together and we do it a couple of times a year, I think. I'll either do the trauma but don't know anything about addiction or they do addiction and they don't see the tie-in to the EMDR or the trauma. So like we just bring them together and we, yeah, we've trained a, probably probably 80 psychologists in Australia in EMDR protocols for addiction. So yeah, it's very cool. The more that people know, because nobody knows about it. That's the crazy thing about it is nobody knows that about it. That is crazy. That is crazy, yeah. right? You know, yeah. I'm just right at the it end of my talk. Gives me a little niche too, center. so that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Hey, uh, right at the end of my time at, at the center, um, I, I still remember casually, you're like, well, we're going to have to address the smoking thing in, with some EMDR. And ever since, like, and I've just been like, fuck, I missed that, right? Like, I never did do that. So one of these days, I'm going to take the drive out there. I'm going to sit down. We're going to do one of those sessions. That, you know, you can put it on my tab, I guess. I don't know, right? All right, so. <laughs> we can do that. Well, then you can report back to Lisa what it's like. I'll give you um, one example about the uh, the desensitizing the triggers. So I had a client from Canada come to the center, um, 
And he was, I, this is a bit graphic and I apologize, but it's sort of important to the story. He is a, a crack user. And when he would use it, he would use cigarette ash for the filter, right? Yeah. Uh, to put in the pipe. And so here he is at the center, excuse me, not using, um, but smoking. And so every yeah. time he smokes, he's seeing the ash and he's getting triggered. Oh, yeah. Right? 100%. How strong I, is the I remember trigger? that. Oh, it's yeah, like that's eight out of ten. Like I'm twenty years it, ago before you know, Brillo. Right? Um, that's that's what we did. So yeah, right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so he's getting triggered multiple times a day, right? We Quite sit down. Nonetheless. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, like <laughs> triggering himself with <laughs> no intention of using or anything, but he's yeah. definitely feeling uncomfortable. We, we do one session um, to desensitize that trigger and he was there for i think seven more weeks and all the way through i would keep doing the phase eight the reevaluation. i kept coming back and be like how are you doing with that trigger how are you doing with that trigger and i remember because you know it's got the negative beliefs attached to it the positive belief at the end of the session was like something along the lines of like this is dirty this is gross i'm better than that i don't want to do it my kid deserves better my family deserves better all this kind of stuff was coming up as we were processing for the next seven or eight weeks, he was like, yeah, it, it's like, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. And that's no just kidding. one session around one trigger. Now, that being said, as we know, people can have lots of triggers, people, places, things, all the stuff, right? Times of day, yeah. et cetera. And we can work on desensitizing all that. I'm a firm believer. I have one client I've worked with the MDR and parts work for like the past almost four years. And there's like, see each other at the beginning we saw each other a lot and now we see each other less and um there's just always stuff to work on and emdr is our our method that we use and he loves it and do you need to be physically together to do emdr no Can you do emdr no. virtually yeah evidence shows that it's um virtually the same outcome so i think personally like if you're in a room with someone obviously you can get the connection because therapeutic uh, alliance is going to be the biggest predictor of a good outcome of therapy. But um, for the actual mechanics of it, like I have um, a website that I use and I send a link to you and it's just got a ball. All you have is a ball on the screen and I control how fast it moves and at what pace and how frequent and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, so we use Zoom or Skype or WhatsApp video call or whatever it is and have this open and we use the ball and um, that's what I did all through the pandemic and got amazing results with people. That's crazy. Wow. Back that's crazy. in the COVID times. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's no secret that you're a sponsor to the show and and it's no secret that I kind of scream Yatra from the rooftops. But while we got you on here, if somebody is interested in either attending Yatra or or getting some online therapy, and I think that's obviously the more attainable thing for for a lot of people because Thailand's not exactly close to you know, a yeah. big part of our market. So um, how do they go about doing that? Mike? True story. Uh, they email us is the easiest yeah. way. I, there's, I mean, there's buttons, like call to action buttons on the website, like, you know, contact us here, contact us there. That gets through. So um, hello at yatracenter.com, admissions at yatracenter.com, or mike at yatracenter.com, center, C-E-N-T-R-E, -E, as Chuck <laughs> likes to say. Um, <laughs> Yeah, part of my little um, chat now. But any yeah. e email us. I mean, one thing, like, yeah, I think when we say Yatra Center, like people might 
envision like the closest because we're residential treatment the closest thing they have in their mind about us would be like like a rehab kind of we're a boutique center we max out at eight clients and you know because my little saying is we're a clinic run by a clinician we're not a business run by a businessman i'm not profit motivated i'm not like desperate to fill those beds i would rather have four people that um, need to be there and want to do the kind of work and work well together, you know, in a safe, cohesive community, then have it full of eight people so I can make more money and have the community disrupted. So, you know, it's, it's small. So when people contact us, like quite frequently, they're getting like me or the admissions guy, uh, whose name is Shane. And like, we're not some big organization that you have to wade through all the red tape to get a hold of us. Like you send an email, we'll get back to you like really quick and it'll be one of us that are frontline people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and I do, of course, we were talking about this pre-recording. I, I do get the phone calls. I do get the messages um, about it now uh, and more and more as, as the platform continues to grow. So, and, and, and that said, yeah. um, the conversation I had with somebody today and, and thank you for, for reaching out was from our last episode. This is kind of funny. It's from our last episode. She messaged me thinking it was you. And, and when I started talking, I was like, no, no, no. Like, no, I'm the host of the show. And I, I was lucky enough to experience, you know, the, the Oscar Center and all of that to offer. I was just like, oh, okay, well, that's even better, right? So <laughs> she's like, because now I know, like, I'm talking to somebody who's experienced it. And so it was great. To, and, and so to anybody that is listening, if you want to reach out, by all means, reach out through any of the social medias, ashesawesomepodcast at gmail.com. I can speak to my experience. I'm very careful not to speak to knowing anything about any of the therapies. I just kind of, you know, I, um, I, it's one of the, the, the things that I do is bastardize things that really smart people take, teach me and tell me. So um, I, I try really hard not to get into what is what, and especially costs, any of that stuff. I can't speak to that. The only thing I can speak to is my experience at Yashra, and I'm more than happy to share that with people if you ask. Right? Um, because it's, yeah, I, like I say. I would say that your you answering those things is actually more valuable than if I did because people would see it's my business. Of course I want you to come in. I'll tell you whatever I want to tell, you know, like I can be seen as doing that. And, but you can't, you have no upside to it. There's not, if you, if someone contacts you and you send me a client, I'm not paying you money or like none of that shit. Nothing of the sort. Um, Yeah. You know, so I, when I would have clients, when I would have clients in care, and they'd be talking about extending their stay. I would say, don't talk to me about extending your stay. Like if you should or not, like talk to someone who's extended their stay and, and let that person give you some feedback on whether it's a good idea or not, because I won't be seen to be upselling people or a salesman. Um, yeah. But, and you know, if anyone's interested in cost, I'll just say this. Anyone who is listening to this, if you don't live in a developing nation, our prices will be less than anything that you'd get in your own country. And I promise you that they won't be able to provide all of the things that we provide for the same price because the cost, our overheads are so much less here than they would be anywhere else. Um, you know, we, you know, we don't have a hospital on site. I don't have like, you know, a bunch of psychiatrists and and doctors walking around. We don't have that. That's, you know, there's a, there's different levels of care. So we have therapists and, and we have support workers and, um, you know, we don't have a medical team, but 
we have people that are trauma informed and we do what we do. And there's like holistic practitioners, somatic uh, therapists, um, and you wouldn't be able to get that for the price no. that we can offer it in, in your own country. I, my I only would say, experience you know, with treatment I can give you specific is, is the numbers, but I don't want to. It, it, so I can't yeah. speak to. I can I can definitely say that everything. I'm literally saying, sitting here right now texting. I'm like texting people, and I'm like, "Oh my god, you need to watch this episode." <laughs> like, like the the use of EMDR specifically around addiction, euphoria, and triggers, and I'm just like, "Oh my god." Like this is amazing. This is amazing. Lisa, yeah. I can send you some literature on it, Lisa. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um and I'll send some people to you. (laughs) That's where I'm at. And you're not paying me. I'm very clear. (laughs) That's true. Um but because that's like a huge thing, is it's like, yes, like I think that it's often, you know, trauma, like old sexual abuse, old things like that that will precipitate somebody into the life of addiction but once you're in the life of addiction especially if you're talking about being 20 years into the life of addiction then yes you know dealing with and i don't like the word dealing with but you know addressing working through that childhood trauma addressing thank you like Mm -hmm. yes like i obviously support that but i think that just living in addiction for so long it's it's hard to break free from those chains because nope. there are so many triggers and you become so used to being in that euphoric state that yeah. it's just difficult to to go back to feeling real yeah. feelings or yeah. living a life without feeling that euphoria anymore you know yeah. that i'm just like and, and i don't want to turn this into an ad for us but just to say like we're pretty remote where our location is we're like 30 minutes outside of a town um on the on the seaside uh like it's an inlet with a mangrove forest and stuff like there's nothing there like so as far as triggers you're out of your environment you're away from family you're away from like the people you use with you're away from the places that you'd score and you'd have a pretty hard time finding like you i mean i know that i know that drug addicts can be quite resourceful <laughs> like as mm-hmm. i was a resourceful drug addict but you know there's barriers built into it that aren't built into doing treatment at home either right the only thing we don't do is we don't do detoxes but i've had people you know come to us with like a week or two weeks clean and have good outcomes um, as long as they're medically stabilized and actually motivated so that you know we do obviously a comprehensive assessment to make sure they're they're adequately motivated to do it um mm-hmm. and and you know it's uh we we jump in with that EMDR really quick. You know, it's yeah. it's I'm a huge believer in it. And I always tell people, we treat addiction through the lens of trauma, but one of the ways that we do that is with the EMDR with addiction specific protocols. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is it's truly amazing. Um we could talk about this offline, but I'm definitely gonna invite you back for kind of a fourth wrap all this up into one. <laughs> because it's just like have to be we're, we've already gone yeah, to where uh, for an hour probably and a half have to now. edit this one way down <laughs> yeah no nah, no no it's compelling stuff i don't see at any point where i want to edit any of this out right so um i i do want to move into the into the to the final segment of the show and that's the daily gratitude just just for sake of time and um we can talk offline about when to do a fourth uh because i think a fourth is definitely called for so 
let's uh let's have that conversation um so yeah that brings us to my favorite part of the show that is the daily gratitudes everybody daily gratitudes are brought to you today by well me i am looking for funding guys in a big big way if you can help out i would very very much appreciate it i'm in Krabby, thailand i'm trying to come up with money for my education visa so i can get myself some stability for a year and after uh, years and years of active addiction, I tell you, stability really does mean something. Um, with that education visa, it buys me a year. Um, I also take a course for 48 weeks to learn the Thai language while I'm here. And, and that way, of course, I can, you know, kind of immerse myself into the culture a bit more. Um, the reason that I'm in Thailand, um, after attending the Yacha Treatment Center uh, for, for my, to address some of my traumas, I decided to stay because the cost of living is so much less here. And back home, I wasn't going to be able to continue spreading the message full time. And that is what I live for. So please, guys, anything you can do to help out would be very much appreciated. Uh, there'll be the, uh, the address here up at the top, the email addresses that you can send. Either um, if you're in Canada, you can send an interactive transfer. Um, you can PayPal from anywhere in the world. And if one of those two options doesn't work for you, of course, you can, uh, you can hit the GoFundMe page at uh, hoapodcast.com slash GoFundMe. So thank you very much, guys. And back to the show. And in the interest of chivalry, we'll start with you, Dr. Lisa. What you got for us today? Well, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at the window, so I'm going to start by saying I'm grateful that it is not minus 47 anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, the interruption earlier, my little one um, swims on Saturday mornings, and then she goes to she, she goes to a climbing center and does climbing in the middle of the day. And this afternoon, she's having a play date. And so she was very concerned that I was not around to fix her hair. Um, and so she <laughs> showed up here to get her hair fixed. And so, you know, I know, so cute. Um, but yeah, just, you know, grateful for my family, you know, grateful that I've got this healthy little girl, grateful that I have a husband who takes her to all these things and lets me spend my Saturday mornings here um, and, and drives her over here for 60 seconds so I can fix her ponytail. And um, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. That's awesome. That's yeah. absolutely awesome. Mike, what you got for some gratitudes? I'm going to be like a bit of a broken record from probably the previous weeks, you know, because we're We've transitioned from Phuket to Krabi and um, we're, we're renovating and stuff. And I just got to say, like, um, my wife is an absolute superstar who is, goes so far above and beyond. And her work ethic is unreal. But just obviously because she's Thai and the workers that we get, like, you know, contractors and stuff to do all the construction and renovations and stuff are Thai. Like, I need her to be the one. But she's also, like... You know, she's got an art degree, so she's got an eye for all the details. And so she's just like been so on top of working with these contractors and getting our new space up to speed so that our clients can come in and feel safe and they can relax there. Um, you know, so she's really taken the lead uh, much more so than me. And I, I just, am, you know, tonight I was telling her how proud I was of her and the work she's doing. Now, that being said, I'm also grateful to all the other staff that have you know, because when we didn't have clients in care, like your job isn't painting, but that's the job I have for you right now, right? So my staff have been like painting and uh, doing like gardening and, you know, like all kinds of just different renovation stuff. And um, so, you know, everyone's really stepped up, you know, and again, the staff moved from Phuket to Krabi and gave up like, you know, uh, one of my staff members has been there for years, right? And came with us and it's like, I don't know how you put 
words to how grateful you feel that people believed in something that you're doing enough that they would uproot and, and follow you to a place um, and help to make it, you know, and the fact that they're saying like, no, us investing this effort in doing it is like, makes it better for us. And, and the clients will feel that. And I'm just like sitting back kind of watching it and being like blown away by it. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot of gratitude for just the support and people in my life, primarily Chu, who's my wife. Of course, of course. And, 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 you know, before I give you my gratitude, I, I, I can speak to that there, like that, that kind of family, let's just all get it done thing. It's amazing. It's, it is. It's, it's truly a family atmosphere. Mm. Right? It's something that I hadn't experienced for a 40 day stretch in many, many years. Right. So like, like, wow, mm. it was really, really cool to be a part of that. So, yeah. um, I am thankful today, Sonny, my dog, always, hey, <laughs> he just like, he mm. lights up my life. Just day in and day out. I, I even put a poem out, which is probably the most vulnerable thing. Of all the shit I have done on this podcast and being on social media, posting a poem I wrote is the, like by far the most vulnerable thing I've done. But I'm just like, this dog sure. is just everything to me, right? He just, yeah. So um, I'm very thankful to him. I, I'm thankful for this series. I'm really glad that we're getting it done. We have more to do. And I'm so thankful for both of you to give up your time very very much so i'm thankful to each and every person who continues to like comment share subscribe do the things hit the buttons down at the bottom because every time you do any one of these things you're getting me a little bit closer to living my best life my best life is to have a little bit better message if you're in active addiction right now today could be that day today could be the day that you start a lifelong yatra Reach out to a friend, reach out to a family member, call into detox, go to church, do whatever it is you got to do to get that journey started because it is so much better than that. And if you have a loved one who's suffering from addiction right now, take the time to listen to us. You just take one more minute out of your day to text that person, let them know they love. Use the words. You are. That little glimmer of hope just might be the thing. Spread my wings and fly